0: Well, if you will, remain standing, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, and we'll read God's Word together. So Romans chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Please be seated. Paul started the book of Romans talking about our need for a savior. He pointed that the Gentiles are in sin. He pointed that the Jews are in sin. He shows the universal nature of sin, that every man, woman, and child is in need of salvation because they're all sinners. Paul goes on to talk about the good news of justification. The act of declaring or making a person righteous in the sight of God. Paul showed us that justification is only found in Christ. There's no works, no religious ceremonies, no traditions, no acts of the law that can justify us before the Lord. Last week, Casey took us through the blessings that are provided in justification, mainly that we have peace with God. And again, this peace doesn't come through anything except for Christ. It's only in Christ through faith that we are reconciled with God. Our text this week wraps up Paul's initial lesson on justification. Justification. He sums up his thoughts on justification by answering the inevitable question that comes from it. How can the act of one man at one point in history affect so many throughout all of history? Our text begins with a therefore, so we need to jump back a couple of verses. So jump back with me to Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 10 says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now been reconciled. While we were enemies of God, we were justified through the obedience of one man. Through the completed work of Jesus Christ, we have reconciliation with the Father. Paul begins this text with a thought that's not fully completed until we get to verse 19. But I think it's fair for us to look at the bookends in this text. So first, Paul starts in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men, because all men have sinned. Then if you jump to verse 19, he finishes this thought. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. These verses have been argued about for hundreds of years they touch on two very important doctrines in the Christian faith. First, they touch on justification, what we believe about salvation, what we believe about substitutionary atonement. Then they also touch on original sin, what we believe about the fall of man, what we believe about sin, what we believe about total depravity. The main argument that people have had over the years is in original sin in these verses. So what is original sin? We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks going through all the verses, but thankfully we have wise men over the years that have come up with things like the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is the teaching distinctives for this church. So if you'll bear with me for a minute, maybe a couple minutes, I want to talk about this doctrine. And I'm going to use the 1689. And if you want to go look at this afterwards, it's chapter 6 of the 1689 Confession of Faith. So this is on original sin. It says, although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it, and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honor. Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to subdue Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given to them, and eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit Having, uh, having proposed to order it in his own glory. Of our first parents, by this sin, fell from the original righteousness and communion with God. And we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in the faculties and parts of the soul and body. They, Adam and Eve, being the root... And by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the, of the sin was imputed and corrupted. Nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin and the subjects of death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and and eternal unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. The corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. So the question of original sin comes down to this. Are we sinners because we sin? Meaning, there's a point in time in my life that I don't sin. Therefore, I have no guilt until that very first time Whenever it is that I have an evil thought, or I'm selfish, or I disobey my parents. Are we sinners because we sin? Or do we sin because we have been imputed with a sin nature? Do we sin because we're sinners? Paul, in our text today, argues for the latter, The reason that we sin is because we are by nature sinners. In verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Sin came into the world through a single man, through a single transgression. Adam was given one rule. Don't eat of this particular tree. And he was given a single punishment, not an array of punishments, one punishment for breaking this one rule, and that was death. So Paul clearly states the facts here. Sin entered the world through Adam, and death entered through sin, and death spread to all men because all sinned. So this is where the historical argument begins. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Many take this verse out of its original language, out of its context, out of its historical context, and say that Paul is saying that death spread to all men because all men would sin, would one day sin. So first, let us take a look at the language. The original text behind that, because all sinned, has a very specific Greek tense. It points to a single specific time in the past. So it's not saying that all men would sin one day. It's instead saying that at one point in time in the past, all men sinned. But we don't have to depend just on the original language. Let's look at how Paul describes sin through the rest of this text. So we'll we'll get to all of these, but I want to point them out now. Many died through one man's trespass. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. By this one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So, as you can imagine, and as Paul obviously did, there's probably objections to that. And he starts to cover them in verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. That's that's the objection that he's imagining probably from his Jewish readers. So let me read that again. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And Paul answers it here. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. We would all agree that there was sin between Adam and Moses. We have the flood. Uh, I mean, that's not, you have Cain and Abel. You go on and on. Sin obviously existed between Adam and Moses. But does God hold those people accountable? Paul's answer is obviously yes. Why? Because the punishment for sin was still reigning during that time. Death still reigned over all men during that time. So the law is not what brings about sin. Because before the law was given, there was still sin. So it's our inherited sin nature that causes us to sin. Paul doesn't fully explain the nuts and the bolts of this. He doesn't explain exactly how this works, exactly how sin is imputed to us. Again, he just points to the facts. Sin entered the world through one man. Death entered through that sin, and death affects all men. Now, the rugged Western individualist in us loves to say that's not fair. How can we be held accountable for one man's sin thousands of years ago? I hear that question when I share the gospel, I hear that question for believers of how I, we would all agree that we are sinners. I'm guilty of my own sin, but how could God hold me accountable for the sin of Adam? Well, these questions are best understood in the, in the light of what we believe about creation and salvation. Paul is teaching here that Adam was what we call the federal head of humanity. He was our representative. Not every man is our representative. Adam was our representative. So Paul's not pointing to some random guy in history and saying, you're guilty of Bolu's sin. He's pointing to our federal head, our representative in humanity. Adam was created was the created representative of all humanity. God didn't choose a man to be our representative. He created a representative for us. He created Adam just for that purpose. As humanity's representative, Adam failed and brought sin and corruption into the world. And this corruption affected all of humanity for all time. If people ever ask you, why is there suffering in the world? Sin came into the world through one man. Death through sin, and death affects all men. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, we can cover later, there are no good people. But why do bad things happen? Sin. So we are all affected through all time. Sin, corruption is in this world, and it is obvious to us. So if we are in Adam, sin and death are already imputed to us. Now, we could stop there and say, Blake, that's that's a really depressing message. But Paul doesn't stop there. This is where Christ comes in. Paul writes that Adam was a type of the one to come. That one to come is the person of Jesus Christ. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Adam was found to be disobedient, while Christ was found not only to be obedient, to be perfectly obedient. Adam was told that he, if, if he was obedient, he would receive the blessings of life and comfort and pleasure, and he failed to do it. Christ was told that if he was obedient, he would be tortured and put to death. And yet he remained willingly and perfectly obedient to his father's will. So in Christ, we have a second Adam, the last Adam, the better Adam. In Christ, we have access to a federal head for a new humanity. One that's not marked by sin and death, but one that's marked by righteousness and life. This is the picture that Paul is painting in this text. Just as Adam's sin brought sin to all mankind, so through one man's obedience and sacrifice, salvation is made available to all. So these verses in between 12 and 19. Paul is going to contrast these two acts of these men. Now, we can't compare, and Paul doesn't try to, to make some human comparison of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with a sinner in Adam. The comparison ends at the idea of one affected many. That's where the likeness stops. So Paul starts to contrast these things. In verse 15, it says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. When Adam sinned, he departed from the standard of righteousness that God set. And that brought sin and death to all mankind. But Paul says that the gift... God's grace and salvation is not like that trespass. The comparison ends at one affects many. Christ's righteous act did so much more. It not only justifies us before God, restoring what we lost in Adam, but that's not where it stops. We're given so much more than what we lost in Adam. In Christ, we have access to the fullness of Christ's righteousness and obedience. We will one day share in the fullness of God's glory as we are in a very real way in Christ. John Calvin wrote, Since the fall of Adam had such an effect as to produce ruin of many, much more efficacious is the grace of God to the benefit of many, inasmuch as it is admitted that Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. Let me read that last part again. Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. Paul has taken to us a place to a place where we should recognize two things. We're way worse sinners than we think we are. We are worse sinners than we could ever imagine. But God saves us beyond anything we could ever imagine. Jesus broke the power of sin and death, reversing what Adam did for those who believe. But the reverse of that can never be true. Sin and death can and will never break what Christ has won. This is why we can have such great assurance of salvation. Because Adam's sin brought death and sin and corruption and suffering into the world. Christ's act of obedience and death and resurrection took care of that. And it can never be undone for those who believe. In verse 16, we see Paul contrast the immediate effect of these two acts. It says, And the free gift is not like the result of, the, of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Adam's act brought condemnation. Christ's act brought justification. And again, we see that Christ's act of obedience does so much more than Adam's act of disobedience. From this verse, we can take away another two truths. God hates sin. He hates it so much that it took a single sin to condemn the world. That's how much of an abomination sin is to God. That's how distasteful it is. That's how much sin corrupts. One trespass, a single trespass, brought condemnation and death for all. But we have an even more amazing truth in this. As much as God hates sin, God's grace through the work of Christ is great enough not only to forgive that one transgression to reconcile one man for sin, but it's sufficient to save all men for all sins. One sin brought death to all, but Christ's act of obedience is sufficient to cover all of the sin that has ever been or ever will be. So verse 16 shows the immediate effect of those two acts. Verse 17 shows us the contrast of the final effect, the the ultimate effect of these two acts. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Adam's act of of obedience leads to death. Jesus' act of perfect obedience leads to life. I think I may have said that wrong, so let me say it again. Adam's act of disobedience leads to death, while Jesus' act of perfect obedience leads to life. As I'm sure you can imagine, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, when they were confronted with this idea of do I obey God or do I not obey God, the end result they were looking for was not death of all mankind. That's not why they did it. They did it because they thought they could be like God. But the result was exactly what God would ha- said would happen it was the opposite, it was a loss of union with God and death reigning on earth. But when we look at the obedience of Jesus, it brings the grace and the free gift of righteousness. And it's it's interesting here because it goes back and says Adam's sin brings death. It, it, It says that death reigned through Adam's sin. But when he talks about Christ's act, it does not say that life reigns. It's not the opposite. Again, it's so much more. It says that we as believers will reign in life. Not that life will reign, that we will reign in life in Christ. Jesus himself said that he came that we may have life and have it more abundantly. Think about this for a moment. One man's sinful act, we have sin, death, corruption, we're a slave to it. But through the perfect obedience of one man, sin and death are conquered. But not only that, we're imputed with the very righteousness of Christ. That is not the opposite of death. Don't get me wrong. Christ did the opposite of death. We have life, but it's so much more. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled himself To be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him that knew no sin, he made him to be sin for the purpose of reconciling us. In verse 18 and 19, Paul sums up his comparisons. It says therefore as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men so one act of righteousness leads us to justification and life for all men for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so that by one so, so by one, the one man's disobedience oh i'm getting that wrong let me read verse 19 again for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous Verse 18 is another text that can get us in trouble if we take it out of context. And there are so many people throughout history that have taken it out of context. Just as one trespass leads to the condemnation of all men, one act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for all men. What does Paul mean by all? Let's start with what it doesn't mean. All does not mean all without limitation. This isn't a proof text saying that all men will be saved. This is not Paul teaching some form of universalism. The idea that Christ died for all men and all men would be saved whether they repent and believe or not. In order to believe that, you have to take this so far out of context that you basically throw away everything else that Paul taught. All right, let's just look at some, just a little bit of what we've gone through so far. Romans 2, verse 6 through 11. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does, who, who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Paul is obviously not teaching here that all men will be saved. So did Paul contradict himself? Or, if you want to believe in universalism, have you decided that you're going to take Scripture and bend it to whatever you want it to be? We'd have to throw out Paul's teaching on justification, coming through faith alone. We'd have to take all of Paul's other epistles and throw them out. For example, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who re- uh, now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with a breath of his mouth and bring nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth had pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul is obviously not saying that all means all without limitation. So how should we read this text in context? Just as one trespass leads to the condemnation for all men, sin is imputed to all sinners through the trespass of one man. If you are a sinner, it's because you have a sin nature imputed through the trespass of one man. That's how you read that all. Everyone that's a sinner... This is how it came to be. One act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Again, we've already said this can't mean all men will be saved. So how do we read it? All who are justified through faith are justified by the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. There's no other way. So if you have faith in Christ and Christ alone, it is through the work of Christ and that's it. All who are saved were saved in a single way. Adam's sin brought sin and death into the world and it infected all of humanity, but Jesus's perfect obedience brings life and righteousness to those who believe. Paul wraps up his lesson on justification with answering another unspoken criticism that, again, probably would come from his Jewish readers. And it would have gone paraphrasing something like this. All this talk of Adam and Jesus, what about Moses. What about the law? So Paul writes, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now Paul is going to much more fully cover this topic in chapter 7. But we see what Paul has already written throughout Romans. That the law was never intended to produce righteousness. The law was never intended to justify us before the Lord. So even with the giving of the law, we're just as much in Adam as we were before the law was given. The purpose of the law was and always will be meant to be a pattern of righteousness. It's meant to be shown as a pattern of righteousness, not a means to righteousness. A little preview of chapter seven, Paul writes, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet it have not been for the law, I would not known I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. For believers, the law should stimulate the obedience that we have been given in Christ. For those that are in Adam, the law stimulates the sinful nature that we already have. So how can the act of one man at one time in history affect so many throughout history? Again, it comes down to this idea of federal headship, representation of humanity. Paul points out two federal heads. We have Adam being created by God to serve as mankind's representative in the garden. Having no sin nature, he's given a single command which he fails to keep. And through his trespass, sin, corruption, death, suffering, whatever you want to call it, entered the world. And it's imputed to all of mankind. But then Paul gives us the second Adam, the better Adam. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, submits himself to the law perfectly. He's perfectly obedient, even unto death. Having committed no trespass, he willingly takes on the fullness of God's wrath, which rightly belongs on those that are in Adam. He is resurrected and ascends to the right hand of the Father, and in Christ his perfect righteousness is imputed to all whom the Father calls to believe. I know I keep repeating myself, but it's very important. In Adam, sin and death are imputed to all of us. In Christ, righteousness and life are imputed to those who believe. There's no neutral ground here. This is one reason that the doctrine of original sin is so important. Because if we're not sinners conceived in the womb, if we're not imputed... With sin, there's a point in our life when we're without sin. And there's just no justification for that in Scripture. There would be neutral ground for a period of time if there was a period of time that we weren't sinners. But there's no neutral ground. We're either represented by Adam or we're represented by Christ. If you're in Adam, if you've not placed your faith and trust in Christ, and Christ alone for salvation, you are in Adam. There is no other option. And as I've repeated many times, this this should be terrifying. If you've not placed your faith in Christ, you are in Adam. And what belongs to those in Adam? Sin, corruption, and death. That's what belongs to you. My advice and the advice of Scripture, cry out to the Lord for salvation. Repent and believe. Place your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Have Christ as your head. For believers, this shouldn't be a depressing message. I hope this is encouraging for us. Because there was a time when we were all in Adam Sin and death belong to us. But as Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were in Adam, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you walk away from this and say, I'm in Christ, great, I don't have to worry about death, you've missed a huge portion of this text. Because for those of us who believe, we have so much more than we lost in Adam. We have more than the conquering of sin. We have more than the defeat of death. We have the Holy Spirit. We have an intercessor interceding to the Father on our behalf. We have the very righteousness of Christ imputed to us. One day we'll have a perfect union, a perfect union with the Son and the Father. One day, we will stand in the very presence of God Almighty and worship. One day, our frail, hurt, getting older everyday bodies will be gone and we'll have glorified bodies. We will spend eternity where there is no more sickness, no more death, no more suffering, no more tears. We have more in Christ than we ever imagine losing an atom, And it all comes through the completed work of Jesus Christ. So today's Father's Day, I'd be remiss if I didn't have a little bit of a message for fathers. Now everyone else listen, because this applies to all believers. But it's especially Important for those of us that are fathers. Fathers, we've been given a great responsibility to not only be given children, but to point our children to Christ, to be responsible to train them in the ways of the Lord. Just as we went through this text, which, again, is very difficult to deal with, We're all imputed with sin, but Christ. Just as Paul does, fathers, we can never soften the message of the gospel for our children. We can never soften it to make it more palatable. We can never water it down to fit in today's culture. Our children need to understand that we're all born into the headship of Adam. They need to understand that God hates sin. Hates sin. It took a single sin to condemn the entire world. They need to understand that we're all born sinners. That the reason we sin is because we have a sin nature. These are difficult truths, but they're truths that we cannot water down for our children. Because these truths make the good news of Jesus Christ so much sweeter. So teach your children the fullness of the gospel. As Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Ephesus, I'll leave you with this, and then we'll close. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's a It's a hard truth to look at your word and, and to wrestle with the idea of original sin, to wrestle with the idea that that we were born in sin. Lord, that we are by nature sinners and your enemies. Lord, but what ground but what What grace you show to us, it's boundless. We, we won't understand it, this side of glory. Lord, that while we were still sinners, while we were very, at our very nature, at our very core, enemies of God, that in your grace and mercy you send your Son... to live in perfect obedience, to take on our sin, Lord, to drink the cup of wrath that we have earned for ourselves. Lord, we thank you for that message. Lord, I'd ask you to bless the rest of this time of worship, uh, that we would continue throughout today, continue throughout the week. Lord, to to worship your holy name and to, to marvel at the wonders of your grace and mercy. Lord, I pray especially for this time coming up with Vacation Bible School, Lord, that we'll have so many children here, many of them not members of the church, maybe many of them that have never heard the gospel, Lord. Let us be bold in sharing it, and not just, not just those that will be on stage or those that are teaching a class, let, Lord, let it. Let those that are working recreation, Lord, those that are serving snacks, uh, those that may be doing crafts or missions, uh, Lord, let us take every opportunity to share the unfiltered gospel. Lord, your word shows us that we've been given so much through Christ, how can we not share it with others? So I thank you for this time of worship. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.